Matrescence, the transition of becoming a mother, can be a vulnerable time for mental health. According to the CDC, one in eight women experience postpartum depression. And this number is as high as one in five in some states. Postpartum depression is really only a fraction of maternal health problems. There are a variety of additional mental health concerns that we don't talk about as much. Some are prompted by the stresses that are associated with matrescence, such as birth-related PTSD, postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, and postpartum psychosis. In addition, underlying mental health concerns that predated the transition can be exacerbated by the process of matrescence. Three in four women will experience the baby blues, which commonly includes short postpartum symptoms such as mood swings, reduced concentration, difficulty sleeping, and it lasts a couple of weeks. Society tends to minimize the baby blues because of its shorter duration, but whether it's days, weeks, months, or years, an opportunity to learn about and potentially improve our mental health, it's worth it, don't you think? Do new mothers have to accept these statistics as a likely reality and push through, or is there something we can do? A few years ago, when I became pregnant, this question just gnawed at me. And today, a few years later, I really believe that if we raised our awareness of the vulnerabilities in this transition and tend to risks as a community, we can begin to change these staggering statistics. So in this episode, we are going to explore key aspects of maternal mental wellness, risk factors to consider, and how you can play an active role in supporting mental wellness. Hi there, I'm Dr. Shana. I'm a mental health counselor, educator, and advocate, and I would like to wish you a warm welcome to the mental wellness practice. This is a place for you to learn about mental health, including key statistics, tips, and skills to help you cultivate mental well-being for yourself and for others. We all have mental health, and if we all felt empowered to improve our mental wellness, I truly believe the world would be a better place. So I created this space for you to access that opportunity. I hope that you're able to take away practical information from this episode and that you use it to plant seeds for your future. If you appreciate what you hear, follow, like, leave a comment, or share this episode with a loved one. For more free educational content, connect on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Shana. You can also check out the show notes for additional resources including the best-selling self-love workbook and the newly released Designing Healthy Boundaries. Remember, this podcast is for informational purposes only. And if you're struggling with a mental health problem, please seek professional help. If you have questions, you're welcome to contact me at drshana.com. Thanks for learning and growing with me. A few quick notes before we dive in. In this episode, we're going to be talking predominantly about the perinatal period, starting from pregnancy and going throughout the year following. I understand that that is not the entire scope of motherhood, but I still am talking to everyone in this episode. So wait just one moment. If you don't fall into that category, please just hear me out. 
So first of all, if you are beyond that scope, a lot of the tips that are shared still, I see them as foundational tips for motherhood and the transition. However, a lot of the tips can still be used for you in your journey. So please don't go just yet. And some of you who are listening to that thinking, well, not only am I not past that phase, I might not ever be in that phase or have no interest in being that phase or that phase is so far out, I can't even think about it. And I understand all of that. However, if you've been listening to this podcast, you may have gathered that I am a huge proponent of a collective approach to mental wellness. When it comes to maternal mental health and our staggering statistics, I believe much of the problem is continuing to pinpoint the problem to the individual and giving the individual that burden to carry and to figure out in a very vulnerable state rather than utilizing the whole it takes a village perspective. So please, if you're here and this doesn't directly fit for you, please still listen because it does fit for you. The last quick disclaimer, in the mental wellness practice, while I really value the use of statistics and helping us understand the current situations and the current severity or concerns, I also want it to feel more approachable. And when I was creating this episode, I had to pause myself because there's a lot of really incredible research to support the points that I want to share with you today. And I realized I was starting to sound really super jargony. I know that's not technically a word, but you could see exactly what I'm trying to say there. So keep in mind that in this episode, I might be referring generally as the research, the literature, an article. And if you are the type of person that wants to take a deeper dive into that, then please make sure you check out the show notes because I'm going to link those specific sources if you'd like to take a closer look. All right, now let's go ahead and get into those tips. Number one, expand maternal mental health awareness. About 50% of women take a childbirth class. What if these were more all-encompassing and included tidbits of maternal mental wellness and not just labor and delivery? And yes, statistics, that can be powerful. That's why I used them before, but they can also be scary. And it's important that we can raise the awareness with adding resources as well. Our whole what to expect idea that we're focused on the transition of what to expect with a child or with the transition or with the changes in the body need to also include the mother, specifically maternal mental wellness. Even if some of the maternal mental wellness 101 information shared in this podcast were more available to, for all expectant mothers and their community, what a change that would make. And that was why I felt so passionate about sharing this episode, because even if you are in the position specifically of being an expectant mother, and you realize there are some changes that you want to prepare for, it can be really hard to do that alone. So having this resource that's free, accessible, you don't have to take a class, you can listen at your leisure, can be something that not only do you use for your specific individual mental well-being, but you can share it with others too. Now, some of you are in healthcare, Maybe some of you work with mothers in the transition. Perhaps some of you even teach postpartum courses. 
First of all, thank you for your work. Second of all, I want to honor that while I'm saying to raise awareness, it can seem really daunting to do that, especially in your positions, but for anyone, because the reality is there's a variety of possible physiological changes to the birthing person, and it doesn't mean it's going to happen for every single person. So there's this fine balance between trying to be conscientious and saying this could happen and this could happen before that kind of rolling out like a scroll, this and this and this and this. And that can be problematic, especially when someone is anxiety prone, has a past history of mental health concerns. So I understand that that is a delicate balance. My suggestion from a mental wellness perspective is to try to target some of the changes that may apply to the person. So as I mentioned, if you know pre-existing conditions, then that association can be helpful for you to share what information and what change might that person want to know. And beyond that, there are some changes that are so common that yes, perhaps the person might be in the minority to not experience them. But the fact that the statistic is so strong, high, I'm thinking about earlier, I was talking about baby blues three and four. From a mental wellness perspective, it might be worth the risk to share something that might not apply in the event that that individual is a part of the majority and it does. One factor that will likely have an influence on pregnant women is hormonal changes. In pregnancy levels, estrogen and progesterone surge. However, soon after childbirth, these levels drop rapidly to pre-pregnancy levels. Experts believe that it's the sudden drop that causes a change in mood. Now, like I mentioned earlier, this sudden drop being sudden may not occur over months. However, if someone is more informed to understand when that sudden drop may occur and what the symptoms look like, then they may be better equipped to take care of themselves. And if the surrounding community is better informed, they may be more aware of what they are seeing. They may spot the signs when the individual cannot, and they can be a better source of support too. Sleep is a foundational human need, and getting quality rest is a cornerstone of mental wellness for everyone. However, there are times that proper mess may be, rest may be hard to come by, and parenthood is definitely one of those times especially as one adjusts to having an infant. Factors such as being stressed from changes in routine, that hormonal drop that I just mentioned, having a lack of free time, and being overwhelmed, especially for first-time parents, can cause a lack of sleep. Knowing this, it's helpful to consider that this may occur, likely will occur, and how can routines be shifted to make space to still prioritize sleep and therefore prioritize mental well-being. Number two, know the signs. An individual approach to mental health can be an empowering one. Trust me, this is the foundation of my work for over a decade. But solely an individual approach continues to confuse me with every passing day. If we recognize that an individual is in a vulnerable state and they're experiencing mental health concerns, 
Why do we place the primary emphasis on that person in that time to catch their symptoms? And then beyond that, okay, now you figure it out. Now you have to deal with it. But we acknowledge that you're in a vulnerable state. It's all very frustrating to me. And I think this all stems from our mental health stigma and the segmented approach that we take to mental wellness that just does not cut it. So when it comes to symptoms of any mental health concern, but especially in matrescence, it's important that we're all familiar so we can all try our best to catch some of these warning signs that the individual may not even see by themselves. Vulnerable states make it harder to see the signs as we've already covered in other episodes of the podcast. So keep in mind, it's not your responsibility to diagnose, but seeing symptoms, especially when symptoms become really common and it seems like the symptom is all you see and typical healthy behaviors, common behaviors that you've seen from this individual tend to become more um, sporadic and uncommon, then that definitely is a sign of a concern and a glaring issue that they're needs to be help for. So here are some general symptoms that you can look for. An empty mood, a feeling of sadness, worthlessness, hopelessness, helplessness, irritability, restlessness, difficulty concentrating, challenges with energy, sleep concerns, abnormal weight or appetite changes, physical pains without a clear cause, persistent doubts, and especially in this situation, the individual's ability to care for themselves or the child, trouble bonding with the child, and of course, thoughts about harming themselves or the child. So those are some general concerns to look out for that span across beyond depression. And it's important to recognize Some of these signs one-off may not be a sign of a mental health problem, but they're still a problem nevertheless. So keep in mind, while we don't want to exacerbate the emphasis on one single sign or a small set, two single signs, they're still problems. And I am of the belief that if we intervene proactively on some of these signs, then maybe, just maybe, it won't exacerbate into a wider mental health problem that takes a lot of time and energy to change. Number three, familiarize yourself with risk factors. Risk factors are variables that make someone more susceptible to experiencing a mental health concern. Another way to look at it is that they're already experiencing some sort of mental health stress and the process of matrescence only adds incremental stress that could cause to a the individual to lead to some sort of threshold or tipping point. So <laughs> this is always challenging for me because the last issue that we see becomes the one that gets a lot of attention, right? So part of my, I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory. I don't know. That's a, that's a loud term, but part of my thought from a mental wellness perspective is maternal mental health statistics are so high because it is a phase in life in which we are paying a lot of attention to maternal health 
by proxy of the child. So um, with that being said, there's a lot of questions and there's some level of assessment that is carried more seriously than at other junctures in a woman's life. So with that being said, we may catch it then, but how do we really know it didn't predate that time? And yes, maybe it wasn't a fully fledged diagnosable concern. Like earlier I was mentioning to you, sometimes you might have these symptoms and yeah, you're not diagnosable, but that this or that all or nothing treatment approach is faulty because yes, we should be relieved when we don't have a full diagnosis, but it doesn't mean we should ignore the symptoms. You know, those symptoms can then continue to aggregate and exacerbate over time, causing a full problem. So anyway, sorry, I don't know. Maybe you want to call that a conspiracy theory. Maybe you just want to call it a theory. I think a theory is something I'm comfortable with. But what I'm saying generally is risk factors are areas that we need to keep an eye out for because if we know an individual has a risk factor, then they may be more susceptible to experiencing certain mental health concerns. And it helps us kind of... Uh, funnel our attention into one area or another. It's not that they can't end up experiencing another type of problem altogether. But again, if someone has, I I can use myself as a perfect example. Forget about statistics for a moment. Um, My story is important too. Part of why I mentioned this question was gnawing at me was because I had lived with my own generalized anxiety for quite some time. And it was also a lot better. And I wondered, okay, so because my anxiety is under control and a lot better, does that mean that I won't be susceptible to postpartum anxiety? Or does it mean that I'm more susceptible? Or what does it mean? And I'm only one person, but I'm really glad that I took my risk factors into consideration strongly because I think it's what helped me figure out that I had postpartum anxiety as soon as those symptoms showed up. And as soon as it was taking, it was evident that they were not going away quickly. So long story short, knowing risk factors can help you keep a keen eye out for concerns. According to a study by Brody and colleagues serving 158 pregnant pregnant and postpartum women undergoing treatment for depression, they found that one third of the patients reported a previous history of mental health concerns. Further, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, women are at a greater risk for developing perinatal depression if they have a personal or family history with depression or bipolar disorder, or if they've experienced perinatal depression with a previous pregnancy. In another study, it was found that women who had no mental health concerns prior to pregnancy, but were treated for a short duration after a pregnancy, had a higher likelihood of developing mental health concerns in subsequent births. For mothers who have worked through previous mental health concerns, being conscientious that these issues can arise again and potentially again, can empower women to make a proactive approach towards their mental wellness. So with all of that being said, here are some common risk factors to consider as they may exacerbate maternal mental wellness concerns. They include financial instability, substance misuse or abuse, being under the age of 20, delivering preterm, 
having labor complications, having trouble breastfeeding, having a child with special needs. And please keep in mind, while there are risk factors that can increase an individual's chances of developing a mental health concern in matrescence, problems such as smoking, unexpected pregnancy, lower income status, it's important to recognize that there is no particular combination of variables that makes one immune to developing mental health concerns in this time. So the, the point of looking at risk factors is to see if there's an emphasis of something that we should be looking out for. Again, the common example I will use is if a mother had wonderful mental health previously, but in the birth of her first child experience, postpartum depression, then it can be helpful to look out for those signs and be prepped for those signs in the birth of the second child or any subsequent birth. However, if you go through this checklist and you feel a bit of relief of this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit, please keep in mind that mental health is not that symptom, simple. So why you may, while you or someone you care about may not have those risk factors, it does not mean that they are in any degree risk-free. Number four, remember that early intervention is key. According to the Postpartum Depression Action Towards Causes and Treatment International Research Consortium, what a mouthful, women who experience symptoms during pregnancy have a higher risk of severe postpartum depression compared to those who have symptoms that begin after birth. One way we could look at this finding is that symptoms, especially if left on treatment, untreated could potentially persist or worsen. So in addition to recognizing that concerns exist and familiarizing yourself with risk factors and learning symptoms, early intervention can also be key, especially if you are in the medical realm and you have patients that you are treating in the pregnant C phase throughout postpartum or one or the other, Having these resources on hand and including that dialogue the same way that you might be addressing physical health could be really important. Now, I emphasize the medical fields because there are so many medical appointments and um, individuals who are in the field are already kind of looking for diagnostic criteria. So that's why I emphasize the medical field. However, please know that that's not a word of caution solely for individuals in the medical field. I think especially the mother in this position, but also the community around us, it's important to kind of confront how we see health and how we treat diagnoses and problems. I'm emphasizing these words because a lot of times we only associate a problem with a diagnosis, yet symptoms are also a part of a problem. And the tendency to wait for the symptoms to aggregate or get to some sort of threshold to call it a problem or to call it a diagnosis, you know, comes from a helpful place, generally speaking. But when it comes to prevention and early intervention, it can really cause us to overlook symptoms and signs sooner and say, okay, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Um, as far as I'm concerned, when I think about the symptoms that we were exploring before, even showing, even one, honestly, even showing one, I don't, I don't know from a mental health perspective, 
I paused for a moment because I was thinking, am I, do I really stand by what I'm going to say? And I do. I think even one of those is a concern that means that we should address it. Sure. Is it the worst case scenario? No. And do we want to wait till the worst case scenario to intervene? Number five, build community. Consider what support looks like for you. It may look different from those who are in your support system because support comes in many forms and preferences vary. Our preferences may also range depending on how vulnerable we feel. And that's something to keep in mind, especially when I think about expectant mothers who are listening. For those of you who are trying to consider what your support system looks like presently, also know that that might change when you transition into the role of becoming a mother. And it also may change over time in general and regardless of being a mother. So it's important for us to reflect on what our current needs and hopes are to connect, lean into, and turn towards our support system. Again, even if they change. And from a boundaries and self-respect place, it's important to do that act for yourself and for others too. But I digress. One area from talking with lots of people in your shoes, or even my experience of being in your shoes, an area that I hear emphasized over and over again when it comes to support system, and that gets a little tricky, is advice. So I'll use that example for now. Not everyone will realize that advice they are giving to a mother might be unsolicited, unsolicited, or potentially stressful. Many times these folks are well-intentioned and simply want to help. However, on the other hand of that, there may be times that you actually do want to solicit specific advice for something that you're seeking support in and knowing who to go to and when to make it clear that you are seeking specific advice, that can be helpful too. Yet you can see how it gets muddy. How do you know when you want advice? How do you know what you want advice in? And how do you know who to go to? These three questions, it might change, it may vary, it may depend on what you're asking for. Yet having that clear consideration in mind, even if it changes, can help you have better relationships and help help you feel like you have agency in the process as well. Now, shifting a little bit, for those of you who are listening as loved ones, what an important job you have. Consider supporting the mother so you also consider how to better support the baby. I think a lot of times the mother gets overlooked because of the vulnerable, understandably so, perspective of the baby. However, knowing that the mother, and while the mother is not necessarily the sole person, the mother is a big emphasis if they are the birthing person, et cetera, et cetera. So please don't overlook that individual in the middle. It's a really important conduit. A lot of times people meaning well, and also maybe not always with the best of intentions, right? Selfish intentions. I know I've been in the loved one position many times and I continue to be, and I hope to always be in the loved one position when it comes to a new mother. And there are definitely times that just oversight, unawareness, and my pure excitement to want to cuddle this new child and play with this new little 
cute nugget um, can cause, you know, those are emotions, right? And those emotions are valid. They can cause you though to supersede the support you're trying to give. Now, also know that when it comes to support, I know that some of you thinking about the support system, whether you're the partner thinking about your, you know, how you don't have a support system or a big enough support system or a helpful support system, or whether you are the mother in the role thinking realistically, I have lots of people, but not a support system. I just want to normalize that for a moment. Um, sometimes the support system reflection can be really humbling. Um, but I've also found that when you have that reflection, it can be really empowering to realize, ah, no wonder, no wonder I'm not feeling great and feeling, you know, drawn thin and I'm exhausted and I don't have someone to turn to because I actually don't have people to turn to. So I want to just normalize for a moment, the feelings, if you are experiencing, I don't have either a support system at all or a helpful, healthy support system that can still grow and change because sometimes we're thinking of our support system in a really limited way. And we're thinking about the support that we have had previously, what support has looked like in other phases of our lives and what support we might have as an ideal, but you know, something to consider is support is support. So you want healthy individuals in your lives that you can tune, tune into, turn towards. I think both of those apply, um, depending on what you need. So there's no harm in expanding your support system. And I, turn towards, especially those of you who are earlier in the process, because again, sooner the better, you can build that up over time, but it's never too late. So I'm talking about your wider community, groups, organizations, parent connections. I know a lot of times now hospitals are giving more social resources beyond just, you know, physical well-being resources. So that's something to keep an ear open for and listen out for in a understandably challenging time. Remember that professionals are a part of your support system too, and can be helpful whether or not you have the support of family, friends, neighborhood connections. Who's involved in the health journey? Is there a physician that's trustworthy, a midwife, a doula? These individuals can help you to support with their experiences, answering questions. Information is absolutely a source of support. So please keep in mind that professionals are also a part of the support system. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention talking to a therapist is a big part of in increasing, enhancing, cultivating support. So, you know, I just wish it were more common for as it's almost so obvious that someone, when they are, when they learn the news they are expecting, the first thing you look for is a medical provider to help in that journey. That medical provider may vary. However, it, we look for that and it's so second nature. And I get it. Like I laugh a little bit when I think about it now. It's like, well, obviously I'm stating the obvious here, but I just wish we were in a place that considering therapy in such a vulnerable zone, especially when we know all of the hormonal changes at the least, potential risk factors at the worst, 
I just don't see the harm in having a therapist on hand. So if the individual, so I'm speaking to everyone broadly here, so I'm talking to mothers, but individuals in the community considering if the mother has already had a therapist that they are working with, that they appreciate and enjoy and feel supported by, then that can be a helpful resource to remind the mother of in this process. Um, even again, just that early intervention aspect of may not even need to be that you're seeing any signs. It's, you know, these, these problems are possible. So how do we have a conversation to make sure that, you know, if uh, the time comes that you need help, that I can make this appointment. I've been working with lots of mothers over the years, especially mothers who are first time moms and entering the phase. And I've come up with, I don't wanna, I don't actually, I'm not gonna take the credit for this. Um, the people who I have worked with have come up with some really interesting plans. I've heard, um, you know, people giving my information to the best friend to say, you know, the only person I'll definitely tell about honest experiences would be my best friend. So know that my best friend will call you to make an appointment for me. Um, I've had partners say, what signs should I look out for? And is it okay if I make the appointment in that phase? And I usually, you know, this is usually done in some sort of couple or family session. So it's that, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Permission? Consent. Consent. That's the word. <laughs> Just really blanked on this very important word in my field. But anyhow, that's given in the moment. So there's creative ways, and I'm not going to go too far off in that, but there's also ways if you are in the role of worrying that you're not going to make the appointment for yourself, lean onto that support system to then lean onto that support system, right? Is there someone that you trust who can help nudge you, especially if they're seeing signs, someone nudge you to make the appointment for you, someone nudge you to contact the provider? There are lots of options. Number six, create a non-judgmental space for honest thoughts and emotions. This I think is important for everyone at any time. But when I come back to those really scary statistics about maternal mental well-being, this really stands out to me as something that is lacking. Because I think many of us know about the severity and the risk factors and you know, that postpartum depression and postpartum mood disorders, any postpartum mental health concern that they're important to address. I think we all, I think many of us know that by now to some degree. And hopefully if you're listening to this point, you definitely know it. But then what causes that gap? And I think it's this space. I think um, we do not create a lot of non-judgmental spaces in the world. Um, and I get it. Humans are wired to assess, compare. That's, that's our human biological nature. Um, I'm not saying to ignore that nature. I'm saying to do your own work so you're able to honor your judgment and sift it aside that's kind of where I operate from. And I think as a therapist, I have people ask me that all the time is, you know, like no judgment, you don't have any judgment. And it's the notion that I'm doing my work outside of session to make sure that I am doing my best 
to regulate my biases and challenge myself, any prejudice I might have, any, you know, strong belief in any one thing, whether it's for or against. That's really important work that therapists do. Again, that loops me back to why therapists are such a great resource in the support system. But in general, I do think therapists are very special. Let me make sure I say that because I know there's other providers listening and I don't want any of our hearts to be hurt. You are special. And I think everyone else is special too. By that, I mean that I don't really think we're doing, you know, super rare magical things. I think we're doing the like basic beauty of human nature is listening, actively listening without judgment. So don't worry if you're listening to this and you're not a therapist, but you want to support someone else, or even if you want to just make space for your own feelings and thoughts and experiences, we need to work on these non-judgmental spaces. And that's totally possible. I, I know you can do that. Now keep in mind, small disclaimer here. I know we're talking a lot about more of like the illness aspect of things and trying to move that towards wellness in this episode. But I also want to note that can we have some non-judgmental spaces for happiness too? This is something I'm seeing a lot and maybe this will be in a separate episode altogether. Notice that when someone's genuinely happy about something, it's again, there's that human nature. I've seen it. I've heard it. I've witnessed it. I've had to check myself from it as, Hey, this person's genuinely happy. Like that's great. So let, let, let that be happiness matters and happiness should trump a lot of the other judgments that you might have. Um, so make sure you're doing your own work around that. If we want to be able to see these early signs, we have to have these spaces that it's safe to talk about. And one of the emotions that I think comes up a lot in matrescence, and if you're wanting to support a mother in this journey, or if you are a mother in this journey and you want to even validate your own experiences, I think we have to make space for grief and this phase and this transition grief comes in so many forms so i'll share a few first entering the role of becoming a parent without parents or with estranged parents or with unhealthy relationships with your parents in any form many times that cyclical nature of becoming a parent causes this emphasis on the parent and for those who have parents who have moved on or have frayed relationships, that transition can be really challenging and can bring up a lot of grief. Some people have the experience of losing their partners. Another example is all the beautiful rainbow babies we have in this world, which symbolize such a wonderful blessing in the present, but also symbolize a loss of the past. And for many parents, it can be really challenging if you have experienced a miscarriage in the past or more than one, that there is this challenge of balancing the grief for the lost child and also, or what could have been even, and wanting to make space for the joy and happiness of the child who, or children who are present. And that can be really nuanced and a lot. And that's a really wonderful example to give an emphasis on the multiplicity of our emotional experiences. I think for some reason we're led to believe we have one emotion at the 
at a time or we can only have one emotion at a time. And um, because of course we want to be happy, many times we may want to lean towards the happier emotion, but it's really important that we make space for even those unpleasant emotions too, because they're a part of our truth. Um, many times parents who are experiencing some, some sort of grief, whether it's actually a life or their own grief processes, right? Of things they can't do anymore, what their life looks like, how their life looks different, how their bodies look different. Sometimes there's the shame of, well, you have fill in the blank, right? You have a child, you have children, you have health, you have whatever thing. And that's often shared with good intentions, but that dismissal creates this widened gap because don't you think that individual knows that already, that, that they're grateful for these things? They know that, but they're also struggling with the space of grief and the various forms that it comes in and not having space to flex that and experience and talk about it and explore it and honor it and validate it. That is what creates the gap that many times keeps, especially new mothers, but mothers in general. And again, this applies to anyone experiencing a mental health concern, not reaching out for help. It is the shame. So keep in mind that if there's anything that you can offer as support, it's offering that non-judgmental energy. It really costs nothing and it's priceless. Number seven, affirm self-worth. So for those of you who are listening as an expectant or current mother, I'm going to speak directly to you for a second. You are worthy. You are enough. Some of you were probably able to receive that and receive it with ease. And that says a lot for your mental well-being. So whatever you're already doing, keep doing it. And some of you may have had flashes of, okay, whew, I, I want to believe that. I don't really believe that. Here are the list of reasons why I can't sit with that right now. And I understand that. However, I emphasize, regardless of those things, the lists, the fleeting thoughts, you are worthy and you are enough. Now I'm going to transition to speaking to the community now, beyond those who are in the direct mother role. And I know that some of you are listening as mothers and in the community too. So I have that on my mind and heart. I mentioned earlier that there is this shift that happens that a lot of the emphasis goes towards the baby when the baby is born. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be any emphasis on the child. Of course, there should be emphasis on the child. However, this starts to become mirrored in lots of mothers and they start to give and give and give to their child out of love, pouring out of their cup, continuing to pour and pour and pour. And sometimes they don't realize that their cup is empty until there isn't that ability to lean on someone else for that hydration to pour into them. And there is a way that we can encourage mothers to do both. Encouraging mothers to take care of themselves does not mean encouraging mothers to neglect their child. 
what we're asking for is to encourage mothers to take care of themselves, to affirm their worth, to see their value, to see how important they are, how irreplaceable they are, that they can also take care of themselves and then better take care of the baby too. I am so confused how we got to a place in society that we see it as one or the other. You're either taking care of yourself and you're being selfish, or you're either taking care of the child and you are fulfilling this like maternal ideal image. And that's not possible. So just keep in mind that self-neglect can be really dangerous, both in matrescence and in the years following. So if you are in the support system role, that doesn't mean now that I'm granting you permission to start preaching forms of self-care to the mother. Um, you know, sleep when baby sleeps, just let your home be messy. The dishes don't matter, the laundry, the, there are these things. Um, and sometimes that works for folks. And sometimes you are telling someone how to care for themselves and you are basically dismissing their own autonomy and agency of what they know for their well-being. So if instead we affirm mothers, we lift them up, we tell them how incredible they are because they are, and we support them and lean into them being the best expert in themselves, especially when they're well, then that allows that cup to be full. So I was like, yes, my role is important. So I do need to eat well, hydrate, sleep well, ask for support, tell other people when I'm not doing well, then I do need to do that because my job is important versus I am not important. So I have to prove that I am okay. And I need to prove that to myself and I need to prove that to other people. And I'm going to fake it till I make it. This big divide, I've seen this fork in the road happen so many times, and it's a dangerous one. So again, instead, simple things beyond that non-judgmental space is offering words of support. You're doing well. I'm here if you need me. You know, how can I help you take care of you? Your role is important. Thank you for doing what you do. You know, ad lib, do what feels right for you. But know that affirming the role of the mother means you're affirming the role of not just the role, but the relationship, and you're helping her and the child as well. Number eight, just ask. I've shared with you in this episode a variety of things to look out for, signs, symptoms, risk factors, and Keep in mind that some women may know exactly what they need, whether that is um, encouraging words, company to help find a therapist. Some women may know exactly what it is that they need in this phase. So the perinatal phase does not mean that somehow, um, Although you'll hear, you know, pregnancy brain, mom brain, you'll hear these things. And yes, we might be off a little bit, but guess what? Some women might actually know what they need in this phase. So be keen to not overlook that because many times women in this position just don't feel empowered to ask or don't want to set themselves up 
to ask and be disappointed or are worried about asking or talking and sharing and being judged. So, you know, I was mentioning just a minute ago, well, while we want to uplift the mother and encourage her and make sure she's taking care of herself, we don't want to necessarily tell her what to do. Many times that might be a discussion of, well, how can we, how can we help you feel more grounded? How can we help you, you know, be more seen or feel more seen? Um, Sometimes there might be that active discussion, but you know, if we just create the space and ask, what do you need right now? How can I help right now? I understand you don't need help in this moment, but if you need someone, you know, you can reach out to me, even just creating that space, you might hear some honest answers. You might be surprised how fast you hear an answer too, especially if this is an open ongoing dialogue and it's not just a one and done offer. You know, you might hear someone say, you know, what I really need is someone to do the laundry. What I really need is to get out of the house for a second. What I really need is company. You might hear these clear, concise things that can help you be a better support. Now I'll tell you what most women will not need in this time. That's body commentary, unsolicited unsolicited advice, being told to take care of herself in a specific way, or just specifically telling her what she needs. So what she needs to do, what she needs to do better. This is not a any time, actually, someone's not doing well. It's not the time to speak at them. It's important to speak together, to have active dialogues. And before you jump into, I think you should do X, Y, and Z, make sure you're including the individual. What do you need? Just ask. Thank you so much for joining me in the mental wellness practice. Today you tuned in because you were curious about how to support maternal mental wellness, and I hope you feel empowered to do just that. For moms who are listening, thank you for doing your part to take better care of you. I appreciate you. And for you supporters, what change makers you are. Maternal mental illness cannot be fully resolved at the individual level, and you taking the time to be here, to listen, and take these points into consideration you're making all the difference. So thank you. I hope you found this episode helpful. And if so, don't forget to follow, like, leave a comment, or share this episode with a loved one. For more free educational content, you can connect at Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Shana, or you can also check out the show notes for additional resources, especially those articles that I was citing throughout our time today. Remember, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and if you are struggling with a mental health problem, please seek professional help. If you have questions, you're also welcome to contact me at drshana.com. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll see you next time.